My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here if we've not yet had a chance to meet. And as Pastor Travis said, we have been going through the book of Hebrews for over a year. We have today and then two more sermons. So three sermons left in the book of Hebrews. And here at the end of the book of Hebrews, we're in, we're in chapter 13, verses 5 through 6. And the, the, the book of Hebrews was originally a sermon that was then turned into a letter and, and passed around to a variety of different churches. And so like, like any good preacher, the author of Hebrews says, I'm done. Now here's a bunch more stuff. And so he's still going uh, at the end. Really kind of some rapid fire machine gun instructions and, and a lot of just little, hey, don't forget this. Hey, remember this. Hey, think about this. And so that's kind of where we're at today. Today the subject is money. And for those of you who were here last week, uh, know that we dove into the topics of marriage and sex. If that wasn't uncomfortable enough for you, well, let's follow it up with a talk about money today because everyone loves to go to church and hear a talk about money. So you can pray for me. What I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, read these verses pray, and then we'll spend some time looking at them together. So read along with me if you would, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. <clears throat> Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me? May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word um, speaks to all areas of our lives. God, that you are, are not only concerned with so-called spiritual matters, but God, you, you are care very deeply about practical matters of our lives. And God, uh, there are a few things as practical in our day-to-day -day lives as money. And so God, I pray today that you'd help me to speak only that which is in line with the truth of your word. I pray that you would give each and every single one of us today soft and teachable hearts. God, so that we might think biblically about the subject of money. And God, even more importantly, we might worship you and not, our, not worship our money. We want to worship you even with our money. God, would you help us today? Would you help us get down to the heart of the matter? Send your Holy Spirit to bring these words to life and let us do all things uh, focused on Jesus in whose good name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, I want to ask you a question, uh, a couple of questions, because what I want us to do today is I really want us to see if we can get our hearts in the right place as we approach the subject of money. So I'm going to ask you some questions about how you feel about money. Not what you think about money, how you feel about money. So maybe think back to that first time that you got a job, and that first time you had a, a for real paycheck, and you saw that pay stub, you saw that money hit your bank account. Remember the excitement? You remember the joy? Like the feeling of freedom, the feeling of independence? Oh my goodness, I've got $700. This is amazing. Then you remember when you looked down below and you saw income tax, and they took the money away from you, and you're confused and hurt and sorrowful. <laughs> you ever lost a job? You ever been in that meeting with the boss? They're like, I'm so sorry. You're, you're a good employee. You do good work. Times are tough. We've got to make cuts. How, how did you feel then? Some of you maybe have even known all the way to, I'm behind on bills. I don't know where my next paycheck is going to come from. I don't know how we're going to buy food. I don't know where we're going to live. Maybe some of you, it's, it's a really fearful thing to talk about money. Any of you ever been at a church service where they started talking about money and cynicism gripped your heart and all sorts of fear and trepidation? What do you feel about money? What's your heart's attitude towards money? And, and I, I'm, I'm using the language of feeling intentionally because there's a lot of heart language in this verse today. And we're going to get into that. I'll explain it more. But, but today is a little bit less pragmatically and practically how do we think about money and really what's our heart's position towards money. And let me just say from the outset, I, I understand, uh, especially for many of you, it's uncomfortable to come into a church to Open up this, this topic of money. Some of you are already making plans to skip community group this week. Like, I get it. Talking about, church, talking about money in the church uh, has not always been handled particularly well. The Christian church does not 
always have a great history about how we speak about money. Some of you maybe have been in churches where uh, money was approached very manipulatively. It was a, a hand wringing. It was a, you know, hey, these lights don't keep themselves on, you know, by themselves. We need you to give money, right? Like, it could be done really poorly. It could be done um, in a really, uh, I'll use the word gross sort of way. There's something called uh, prosperity gospel, which basically says the way that you can tell if you've received God's blessing and received God's favor is if you have financial provision. It's really tough because uh, Jesus was really poor <laughs> during his earthly ministry, so it kind of doesn't line up biblically. But, in, you know, the preachers, I actually, I'll tell you, um, I was actually in a church service of sorts one time when I heard a guy, this is my own ears, this isn't hearsay, I, my own ears heard a preacher say that he believed that God wanted every Christian to own their own private jet. I know, right? Yeah. If you winced a little bit when I said that, okay, we're tracking, this is good. But just all that to say, money hasn't been handled well at times in the church. We've had kind of a, a hypocritical relationship with it. I would actually go so far as to say, though, there's, there's something in our culture uh, that's not, that doesn't handle money as well either. I hear... Um, you know, some of these songs that come on the radio or, you know, playing, playing around, people play songs, especially from maybe like rap artists where they just sit there and they just brag about how much money they have and they can throw $20 bills out the window and not even miss it. And yet at the same time, they're wanting to diss, you know, CEOs and, and the corporate fat cast for having too much money and not doing enough to help. I'm like, that, is, that just seems kind of hypocritical to me. Or even... Not even like the, the shiny pop culture side of things. What about just kind of the good old heartland, America, blue collar, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, work hard. If you, if you are just diligent, if you work hard, everything's always going to work out for you. Like, like, really? Bad things never happen to people who work hard and try their best? There's no uh, imbalances sometimes in the system. There's no injustice at times, really. Everything is just purely fair. And if all you ever do is just work hard, you're, you have a right to have all of your money. I think that the key of all of those bad examples I just talked about, the key really is entitlement. The key really is a heart that says, I've got what I've got and I deserve what I have and don't you dare try to take it away from me. An entitlement heart. A heart that says, this is what I've earned, this is what I deserve. I've told this story before, but it's relevant. My two oldest daughters... Um, they're 11 and 10 now. Five years ago, they were six and five. We're at a restaurant and we're finishing up the meal and my oldest daughter, Mackenzie, said, Dad, we really want dessert. Will you please buy us dessert? We've been so good. We deserve it. And without missing a beat, Delaney, who was five years old at the time, yelled out far too loudly for a public setting, we deserve death and hell, not dessert. <laughs> And I was like, man, so theologically accurate, so socially inappropriate. <laughs> if we're honest, we, we do settle into that mindset of entitlement. We deserve it. We've earned it, right? It's not just kids wanting dessert at the restaurant. If we were honest, I think we'd all have to say, yeah, the entitlement mentality creeps into to each and every single one of us. And so what money does is money gives us a really insightful look into our heart. Money, money peels back the curtains and gets really to the deepest levels of the human heart. And so that's actually really the big idea of where we're going today. It's this, money provides a powerful look into the human heart. And as we experience more of the riches of God's grace and mercy, we are free to worship Jesus more and to idolize money less. I'll repeat that one more time just so we can kind of stew on that idea. Money provides a powerful look into the human heart and as we experience more of the riches of God's grace and mercy, we worship Jesus more and we idolize money less. Now, let's start by talking about this idea of the human heart and what we worship. Okay? So if you look back in verse 5, especially the beginning of verse 5, it says, keep your life free from money. Now what does it say? Keep your life free from, what's the word? Love of money. And learn to be content with what you have. We'll see in a minute here later in verse 5 and in verse 6, it talks about not fearing. All of this, this passage is really about heart language. Love, contentment, 
fear. This is not the author of Hebrews giving practical advice on how to balance your budget. This is him saying, hey, we need to talk about the heart and your, your attitude towards money. When we talk about the heart, we talk about what we love, we talk about what we invest in, we talk about what we worship. So I want to take a minute, I just want to unpack biblically for you just this idea of worshiping God versus worshiping money. So let's back it all up. Let's go all the way back to the very beginning. The, the beginning point where we always have to start is this idea that we were created as image bearers of God. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is foundational for us to understand what human nature is and how we act We'll build towards how we act towards money, but let me just say this. The idea of being created in the image and likeness of God is a very, it's a very thick concept. It's not easily distilled. It's a very nuanced concept, but, but it means that we're, we're able to act and we're able to will and we're able to purpose and we're able to love and we're able to invest. It means that we're active. A, a rock is not created in the image and likeness of God. A, even a, another animal, like a, a, you know, a badger, is not created in the image and likeness of God. Human beings are because we are uniquely able to love and to have moral judgment and to be able to reason uh, like our Father in heaven. But because we're created in the image and likeness of God, that means we're always reflecting him. We're image bearers. It means we, we, we're like a mirror that reflects who God is. And so when we love and when we think and when we pour ourselves out, we're showing a bit of what God is like. Yes, human sin has entered into the picture and that, that mirror that we're supposed to be has been cracked and distorted, but it's not destroyed. Even the most uh, uh, wicked sinner still bears the image and the likeness of God. The second thing we see, though, that being an image bearer means that we are never neutral. We are never neutral. A mirror is never neutral. It's always reflecting something. The classic example of this we can actually see in Romans chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul is talking about people who they're foolish and they, they don't honor God, they don't worship God. And so he says instead of worshiping the creator, they started worshiping the creation, Things that were created. He talks about, you know, birds and animals and things that creep along the ground. They've, they've traded the, the image of God for the image of humanity. And, and the point is they can never turn it off. You're never neutral. Theologian G.K. Beale puts it this way. He says, God has made humans to reflect him. But if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging Creatures, it is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. So all day long, as you go about your life, as you go about your activities, as you go about things that even to you just seem like totally neutral activities, driving, checking out at the grocery store, picking up your kids from school, meeting with your employer or your employees, all of those things that just seem like sort of neutral tasks, you are either in every moment, every second of every day, imaging the creator or imaging something else. Third thing to see is this, this imaging is what really flows into worship. This flows into worship. Imaging means we're reflecting what God is like. And one of the things that God is, is he's an active God. He's always outpouring of himself. He's always giving of himself. We see this actually in the language of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, throughout all of eternity, loving one another, pouring into one another, even, you know, in a sense, imaging one another. Because we're created in his image and likeness, that's what we're doing constantly. We're worshiping. And worshiping is, is, is a few things. Worshiping is loving something. What do you love? What is it that's really, really valuable to you? Like Jesus said in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What is it that you, when you think about things that you love, what is it that would you know, actually get you out of bed or get you up off the couch to pursue? Okay, that's good. That's the right answer, yes. But really, at the end of the day, our hearts are drawn towards things that are not Jesus. We start to love things more than we love him. It's not just loving, though. It's not just a feeling in your heart. It's, it's what do you trust? It's what do you trust? At the end of the day, when the rubber hits the road, if, if everything else falls away, as long as I still have fill in the blank, I'm going to be okay. 
Now, again, we might, we might say Jesus, yes, that's the right Christian answer, that's the right answer biblically, but, but, but those who know you, those who know you best, those who have a window into your life, if somebody was to, somebody who doesn't know you was to follow you around for a week, like a hidden camera, and they were to dig through your receipts, and they were to look through your, your bank account, and they were to look through your calendar and the hours that you spend your time, what would they say uh, that you treasure and what you say that you trust in? And that leads me to the third thing is, what do you invest in? What do you give yourself to? And investing, this is your, your time. This is your money. This is your mental energy. Uh, I'll, I'll, pick on, I'll pick on the guys for a moment. I've known some guys who could tell you what college that the linebacker that plays for the Miami Dolphins went to. And I'm like, first of all, why are you even paying attention to the Miami Dolphins at all? Second of all, <laughs> that took mental effort, that took mental energy, you know that because you invested yourself in that. Now, is it a sin to be a fan of football? Absolutely not. It's, it's not a sin. But, but the question I have, I often have for, for people is, what are you invested in? The psalmist talks about hiding God's word in your heart. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, says, you know, I want to be the kind of person that if you cut me, I bleed Bible. Right? And I, I've known far too many guys that if you cut them, they bleed NFL statistics or they bleed, you know, TV show quotes or whatever. It's not a sin to participate in those things. But I'm talking about what you treasure, where you spend your time, where you spend your effort, where you spend your money, where you spend your mental energy. The fourth thing is this. When we reflect and, and, and image God, that's called worship. But when we reflect and image other things, it's called idolatry. Worship versus idolatry. We're never neutral. We're always worshiping one way or another. We're never neutral means every time you swipe your debit card, it's a worship act. Either worshiping God or worshiping something else. Now, idolatry in our modern, civilized, progressive culture and progressive era, we often think of idolatry as people setting up statues and people setting up totems and bowing down to them and worshiping them. The interesting thing is if you, if you study the, the cultures, especially you know, the ancient Near East, the time of the Bible, yeah, they set up statues, but every one of those statues represented something. Those statues represented things like grain or water or fertility or peace or war or family or the sun or the rain. All of the so-called gods, all the so-called idols represented something that was a necessity for life, something that people need, something that people want. And all we have done today in our progressive, modern, enlightened, civilized Western culture is get rid of the statues, but we still worship all of the same things. Those things are still of ultimate importance to us. I know it sounds odd maybe to some of you for our progressive ears to hear, but we worship idols. We just don't maybe set up the statues. The idols in the heart, there's actually a verse in Ezekiel where, where God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. It says these men have taken idols into their hearts. It's not about having a statue on your mantle. It's about having an idol in your heart. And we know that anything can become an idol because we see in Exodus 20, this is when God is giving the Ten Commandments. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the second commandment is, you shall not make an image of anything, you know, in the, in the earth, under the earth, in the water, no creeping thing, no crawling thing, no swimming thing, no, he just, he just widens the category to include everything in all of creation. We can turn anything into an idol. John Calvin, the, the, the famous reformer, said that the human heart is an idol factory. And it's, again, because we're never neutral. We never can turn it off. And number five, I want you to understand that we become like what we worship. When we image and reflect and invest and worship someone or something, we start to take on those characteristics and those qualities. 
I'll give you two examples from the scripture, one positive, one negative. The negative one comes from Psalm 115, that that idolatry changes us. This is what the psalmist writes. He's talking about these idols. He says, they're silver and gold. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths, but don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but don't hear. They have noses, but don't smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. This is a dead statue, a dead idol. And then he says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. So using our example today of money, sometimes we talk about cold, hard money, cold, hard cash. Have you ever known somebody that you could say, man, they really worship money? Don't you use the words cold and hard to describe them as well? Unfeeling, uncaring, lack of generosity, bottom line. But on the positive side, those who worship God actually take on the characteristics of godliness. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul is making this appeal. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's worship language. To give of yourself, to die to your own desires, to invest yourself in the things of God. A living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, don't be conformed, don't don't look like this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see that word transformed in there? As you worship God, the good news is you are transformed to be more like him. You take on the characteristics of Jesus. You take on what the Bible calls the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These admirable qualities. How many of you want to be more like that and less like the idols that we're tended to worship? Okay, so the question is, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we avoid idolatry? How do we run away from idols? And how do we worship God? And I'm so thankful that the author of Hebrews gives us this this picture into the human heart because let's just be honest. Money is one of the most prevalent false substitute gods in all of human existence. Money loves to be God. This is nothing new. This has been going on for thousands of years. This has been going on really since the beginning of human civilization. Jesus says it as much in in Matthew chapter 6. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot worship God and money. You cannot image and reflect both God and money. Money loves to be a God. And let me just say also right right now, I want to be really clear about something. It's not just rich people who can love and worship and idolize money. Don't let that be a a false image. Like, oh, sweet, I'm off the hook because I'm broke. No. Poor people can love and worship and idolize money just as much as rich people can. In fact, in my experience, I've seen where oftentimes rich people are just enslaved to their money. They don't even love it anymore. They're just slaves in chains. But poor people, they don't have it yet. And so they actually pursue it with greater um, intensity. That's my experience. It's not always the case. It has nothing to do with your income tax bracket. It has nothing to do with your position you know, at the company. It has everything to do with the posture of your heart. Rich, poor, middle class, white collar, blue collar, pink collar, I don't care. We all have to do business with this idea that money wants to be your God. No one can serve two masters so how do, we get, how do we get into the heart and we can start discerning these things? Well, I want you to see something um, from these verses, the, ne- the next couple of verses, where the author of Hebrews really identifies a key way to look. So, so read with me, if you would, in, in, in verse 5 and 6. Um, he says, you know, don't fall into love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not, what's the word? Fear. What can a man do to me? If you have your Bible with you, underline that word fear because that's really a major key to understanding what's going on here. 
But let me start at the surface because I want to dig down into the heart. I'm going to start at the surface. Here's what, here's what this looks like on the, on the surface level. You start to see some wrong attitudes towards money. You start to see idolatry and worship. Here's, here's some key indicators, okay? So the number one wrong response about money, it starts off simple. It starts off with grumbling. Grumbling about money. I wish I had a little bit more money. I wish gas wasn't so expensive. I wish fill-in-the-blank political party didn't take all my money. I wish that my children didn't take all my money. Uh, grumble, grumble. I just like the, I like the word grumble because it sounds like what it is. Like, grumble, 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 right? Like just... You think about that attitude. Okay, raise your hand if you've ever grumbled about money. Okay, now, we could look at that and say, okay, it's, it's just grumbling, it's just a little minor sin, it's not like I went out and robbed a bank, but you guys know, we've been reading through the book of Hebrews. You remember how seriously God uh, took the grumbling of the people of Israel? Oh, God. Back when we were in Egypt, those glorious days when we were slaves in Egypt, after they took the chains off us and were done beating us, we had steak. It was so good. We had meat to eat. Oh, those were the good old days. God, why are we out here in the desert now? We don't have meat to eat. They even, they even complained that they didn't have onions and garlic. Like, in my life, I try to avoid people that love onions and garlic too much. But here are the people of Israel, like back in Egypt, we had onions and we had leeks and we had melons and grumble, grumble. And then God judged them pretty severely, didn't he? So can we just say that grumbling might be one of those respectable sins that we let ourselves get away with, but it's poison to our hearts? So grumbling about money. That's what it sounds like. Then it goes a level deeper, okay? So now it's not just grumbling. Now we actually get greedy with money. This isn't just grumbling where we just kind of sit around and complain about it. This is now I'm actually going to take action. I'm going to do something. I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to take what I'm owed. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to, you know, climb the ladder. I'm going to do whatever I got. I'm going to start to get greedy with money. Oh, they want me to be generous? No, I'm not going to be generous. I got to hold on to what's mine. Oh, they want to ask me for money at the church? No, I'm not giving to that thing. No, I know it's Christmas time, but forget those little orphan kids. I got to save up money for myself. We start to get greedy. Okay, again, show of hands. How many of you have ever been greedy with money? This is a church. You're not allowed to lie. Thank you, Okay. I love pulling that card out. That's my favorite. We're greedy. We see a need, we pass it by. We see an opportunity to invest money God's way. No, I'm just going to hold on to it. Because it's so satisfying to our hearts, isn't it? I have. Having is better than not having. And then the third level down, the deepest is where money just becomes our God. Now, I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know where you're at. Um, my guess is that maybe not too many of us here in this room really struggle with having money as our God. Like we just live and die for money. But I'd be willing to bet in this room we've at least known some people. They lost their family. They lost their social life. They lost their physical health all for the sake of the almighty dollar. Isn't it funny that we even call it that, the almighty dollar? Last time I checked, only God was almighty. Money becomes a God. Now, that's what it looks like on the surface, but the author of Hebrews says that there's fear going on underneath. Just because we're grumbling and just because we're greedy or, or even enslaved to money, there, there's still a deeper level to go, isn't there? And it's the, it's, the, it's the area of fears. What are you afraid of? Let me just offer a few suggestions. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the most common that I see as a pastor in the lives of people that I meet and talk with. One of the fears that happens is this idea of loss of stability and security. Doesn't money provide security? You, if you have money in the bank, you know you'll be able to pay your bills. You don't have to deal with instability. You can sort of predict what's going to happen. You, 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 you start to lose that money. Any of you who've ever lost a job, you know that feeling, that fearful feeling of that loss of stability. What's going to happen? What's coming down uh, the pipe? What's, what's tomorrow going to be like? What's next week going to be like? What's next year going to be like? And all of a sudden, fear grips our heart. I don't have stability. Another common one that I see is the fear of losing power or control. How many of you would agree that money provides a sense of power and control? Uh, you can buy things with money. 
That's a really no-duh statement, but you can buy things. You can buy people with money. You can control circumstances. You can have a sense and a feeling of power. Some of you who've ever worked in the food service industry or other service industries, you know that sometimes dealing with really, really wealthy people can be a nightmare because they come in and they have this sense of power. I'm just going to boss everybody around and they're all just going to do what I tell them to do. That's an overt display of that. The guy in the, in the you know, $3,000 suit with a big gold ring and the leather shoes, he comes in and everyone's like, oh, I got to take this guy seriously. That's an overt display of it, but even for some of you who just dress more regularly, when you have money, it's like, oh yeah, I've got the power. Another fear, another common fear that I've seen is this idea of a loss of safety and belonging. This is, this is really relational. You guys remember the parable of the prodigal son? Jesus told the parable about this, this foolish young man who took all of his money and he said he had lots of friends. He had lots of friends when he had money. And when his money ran out, no more friends. So some of us have money and, and we, we feel like we've got some safety. We, we, we feel like we've got a sense of belonging. We've got the nicer house that people want to come over to and hang out. We can throw a dinner party or we can you know, have you know, people come over and do a barbecue or whatever because we've got some, some money. But what if that money goes away? Will my friends still be there? Will my loved ones still be there? Who, who will I even be? What will my identity be if I don't have money? I actually heard of a case. This is an extreme case, but I heard of a case of a pastor that I knew and worked with that a couple came in and the husband said, he was quite wealthy. He said, I'm afraid that my wife only married me because of my money. And so don't tell her I said this, but as a way of testing her, I'd like to offer her uh, a check for multi, multi-million dollars to leave me because I just want to test her. I mean, who hasn't done that really? I mean, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I, I, this is an extreme case, I know, but, but this man was terrified that, that he was not going to be loved if he didn't have money. But friends, underneath all of that, all of those fears, do you know what's really at the, at the base of that? It's a failure to understand the gospel. It's a failure to understand what we have been given in Christ Jesus. See, the gospel says, the gospel says that, that we do deserve death and hell. We come like orphans, we come impoverished, but that God, who is rich in grace and mercy, sent his only son Jesus to live and to die and to rise again, that all who place their faith in him and all who trust in him would be given not just life and happiness right now, but eternal life. The Apostle Paul writes in, in, in the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, he writes this. He says, he says that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Think about this, friends. Jesus the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, takes on human flesh. Uh, he was in heaven, in glory, throughout all of eternity, being worshipped by the angels, existing in splendor and radiance and power and majesty. And yet he took on human likeness and human form and was born in an animal's feeding trough. And he was forced to run for his life in the earliest years of, of his earthly existence because the king wanted to wipe him out. Then he moved back into a town where he worked with his father, just doing a blue-collar job, doing carpentry, manual labor, working with his hand. Though he was a king, he was now a pauper. And when he began his earthly ministry, he walked around and he told people, said, listen, foxes have holes and, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have anywhere to lay his head. And when he was... At the end of his earthly ministry, he was treated uh, as a criminal. He was treated lower than a criminal. He was treated as the lowest type of criminal and was subjected to death on a cross. And the blood was literally drained from his body. He gave everything. He emptied himself of everything. Why? So that he could rescue and redeem and save sinners like you and me. That's the gospel. That's the goodness of God's grace, that he did not hold anything back from us, that God gave his very son, that the son gave his very life, that we might be saved. 
And it says that we get a share of the inheritance of the riches of heaven. And we don't just get any share. We don't just get a little sliver. We get a full share, the same as what Jesus himself, the perfect son of God, gets. And how do we know that this is all true? Oh, because Jesus rose from the dead. They killed him, but he didn't stay dead. And so now we can know that everything he said was true and all of his promises are true. And really, that's the answer to all of those fears that creep into our hearts, isn't it? When we fear, uh, when we fear the loss of stability and, and security, well, think about this. Jesus says, I know who belongs to me and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. The Apostle Paul in Romans says there's neither height nor depth nor angels nor principalities nor anything else in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. We know that because Jesus Christ died and rose again, we know that our future is secure, don't we? That even though um, money comes, money goes, the stock market rises, the stock market plummets, we get a job, we lose a job, none of that at the end of the day really matters because we are secure in Christ and we'll have the riches of heaven for all of eternity. Is that good news to anybody today? Oh, well, what about power and control? I need, I need to have power and control. Well, listen, the book of Hebrews already told us that Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. I can't even uphold my backyard by the word of my power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You want to talk about power and control? He's got it all. And if you're a Christian, you're in Christ. So you're going to be all right. Well, what about identity? And what about belonging? And what about knowing that I'm safe? Well, get this. God saw you at your worst. God saw you when you didn't have any money, you didn't have any riches, you didn't have anything to bring, you didn't offer him up anything. He's the one who is rich in grace and mercy. He loved you. Like Ephesians said, he raised us up and seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. That means we get a spot at the table of honor. And guess what? You are loved. You don't need money to buy friends or a wife or a girlfriend or a boyfriend to tell you that you're going to be okay. You are loved by the God who owns, as the Psalms say, the cattle on a thousand hills. Do you see how the gospel combats these fears? Do you see how the gospel gets right down to the heart of the matter? When we see bad behavior towards money, it's often because there's a fear and that fear is not being met with the truth of the gospel. It really is as simple as that. It really is as simple as that. Let me just say a couple of things, what this could look like, what this might look like to walk it out. Having heard the gospel, having received the gospel, this, this is a little bit of what it would look like. Let me just remind you what the author of Hebrews says. He says, keep your life free from the love of money, not from money itself. There's another verse in the book of First um, Timothy. It's misquoted all the time. It's misquoted by non-Christians and Christians alike. It's, they, they say, the love of money is the root of all evil. You ever heard that one? Well, stop hearing that one. It's not in the Bible, okay? What the Bible actually says is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, money is... At the end of the day, it's a, it's a tool. It's a resource. But we either can use it in a way that worships God or we can use it in a way that worships ourselves or something else. I, I want to be clear here. It's not a sin to have money. It is not a sin to even have a lot of money. And you know how I know that? Because God himself owns everything. So if it was sinful to own possessions, then God would be guilty of sin, and we know that he's perfect in all of his ways. The Bible says, keep yourself free from the love of money. But we also need to be careful not to, to swing this too far. I think there's this tendency, especially in America, to miss out on nuance or, or balance. We're, like, we're kind of pendulum swingers, right? We could say, oh, well, if money is so dangerous and money's this God and money's this idol, I just need to throw all of my money away and I'm going to go become a monk and live in a cave in Idaho or something like that, right? That's not necessarily what faithfulness to Jesus looks like. There's a story of St. Francis of Assisi. You guys heard of him? He's kind of a, a famous monk, um, Middle Ages, and he, 
Somebody came into the church, they brought in a big bag of money and one of the, the friars, one of the brothers went to like take it and put it in the treasury. And he said, go take that outside and bury it in the pig excrement pile. I don't want to have anything to do with that filthy money. I'm like, oh, that's, that's a bit extreme. <laughs> it's not money itself. It's your heart. It's the love of money. How are you using it? How are you stewarding it? How are you spending it? Let me, let me, let me make a... Um, let me make a rather bold declaration here. I think that God wants some of you to have a ton of money. God wants some of you to have like a ridiculous amount of money. Why? Well, this is my second point of what walking it out looks like. Not so that it's a, it's a bit of a cliche. It's not so you can increase your standard of living, but so that you can increase your standard of giving. God gives so that we can give. Some of you, God is going to entrust a lot of money to. We actually see examples of this in the Bible. Uh, I'm thinking of the New Testament in particular. There's a woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman. Says so she's a seller of purple cloths. That's the most expensive type of cloth. You didn't just have readily made dyes and such. It was really hard to get. She had a ton of money, and she actually helped bankroll several early church plants individually out of the overflow of her wealth. And she's commended in the scriptures for being a wise and savvy businesswoman who helped just kick off uh, the Christian church in a part of the world where there were none. But whether God entrusts you a ton of money or a little, the question is, are you going to be generous with it? Is, is the money going to hold on to you? Are you going to hold on to the money or are you going to seek to give it away? God gives so that we can give. The pattern is, God initiates, we respond. God loved us so we love one another. God saved us. He forgives us so we forgive one another. God gives to us so we can give to one another. And then this plays out, practically speaking, in the area of stewardship. Are you being a faithful steward? Now, I told you this, is, this sermon is much more about the heart. It's not about the practicals, but let me just touch on this briefly. If you want more about just kind of the practical side of, of, about money, uh, we actually did a sermon back in June called God's Generous Grace. You can go to the website, you can look it up, listen to it. Um, a lot more practical. So let me just say a few things here. Number one, um, being a faithful steward, some of that means saving. Some of that means saving. Sometimes one of our unhealthy ways that we relate to money is the moment it comes, we gotta spend it, right? Uh, burning a hole in your pocket. That's something I myself struggle with at times. I love to just I get the money, I wanna spend it. It takes discipline to save, doesn't it? There's actually verses, lots of verses in the Bible about the wisdom of, of saving up, of storing up so that when difficult times come, not only can we survive, but we're able to share and help with others. There's verses that talk about providing for family. Being a, being a good steward means providing for family. Now, I understand. Some people lose jobs, difficult times come. There should be no shame uh, when those times come. But, but there is something that's really, um, that needs to be addressed if, 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 Especially, kind of stereotypically, if a, if a man is the, the breadwinner for the home and brings home a paycheck, but then he's stingy with his wife and kids, the Bible actually says that that type of a person is worse than an unbeliever. Some really strong language for those who don't provide for family, who don't take care of the needs, if they're stingy and selfish and, and, and ungenerous. The Bible would talk about um, helping the poor as a way that we steward the resources that God's given to us. Let me just say this. Uh, what's, the, what's the saying when you're on thin ice? You might as well dance. Here we go. Um, in, our, in our highly politicized climate right now, I hear a lot of talk about which party, which candidate's going to help take care of the poor. And friends, I would like to just say that if the church of Jesus Christ is depending on the government to take care of the poor, shame on us. We have failed what God has called us to do and to be as the church. Okay, I, I don't know that it's wrong or sinful for there to be government assistance programs or bailouts or things like that. I don't, there's not really, that's not really addressed in the Bible, but you know what is addressed in the Bible? We are supposed to take care of those needs that come up in our midst. We are supposed to. And we can't look to a president, a governor, a senate, a legislature to solve those things Jesus has placed the burden and that responsibility on us as the church. And I believe 
that if the church really rose up and did what we were supposed to do, we could put the government out of a job. And that'd probably be a good thing. So it's you. Wow, bummer. Somebody in my community group just lost their job. Hope they can get food stamps. No, how about you take them some groceries? And this is why we're seeking to do, you know, even better things with like our benevolence fund and, and setting aside money to be able to provide for the needs of those in the church. We do that as a church. Your generous contributions to the church in part do that. But I'm also so thankful. I mean, there's people even right now in this room who have lost money, who have lost jobs, who've had things stolen from them. And I know that your communities have rallied around you and helped provide for you in those times. Praise Jesus for that, amen? Such a good thing. And yes, Supporting the church. You knew I was going to say it at some point. <laughs> giving to the church. I think some of us approach giving to the church like going to the gym, like, oh, if I get around to it. Some of us approach giving to the church like, well, it's just one of the bills I pay. I've got to pay the electric bill. I've got to pay the phone bill. I've got to pay the church bill. Friends, if you're here and this is your home church and you say, you know what, I, I believe in the mission that this church is on. I'm fed here spiritually. I'm loved by other people in the church. Then the Bible has all sorts of verses to point out about hey, giving to the work of the ministry, supporting those who labor in preaching and teaching. I, I recognize fully how awkward it is to stand up here and say, I get my paycheck from your donations and contributions. Thank you for allowing me to preach the word of God. It's not about me. It's about you and your hearts and giving to the work of the ministry that God has called us corporately together. This is not a, this, this gets into some much deeper territory I don't have time to cover, but this is not a you pay, I provide, right? This is about us together investing in the work of the ministry. Ephesians 4 says that the pastors, the leaders in the church are given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So my job is to help you do the work of the ministry. So supporting the church. Are you intentional? Are you, are you fearful? Ooh, I don't know if I can give this month because I don't know if God's going to provide for my needs. I don't know if I can. Let those fears be known. Let those fears be seen. And then seek to respond to Jesus as he would call you to. Let me just close with a quick thought here. Uh, friends, God's grace is incredibly rich toward us, isn't it? Can you even begin to fathom the riches of God's grace toward us? The more we think about it, the more we think of just how absurd it is that the God of the heavens and the earth would, would come in human form and, and live a, a poor life so that we might gain the riches of heaven. Doesn't that just do something in your heart? Doesn't that start to put those fears to death? Doesn't that start to cause you to say, I, I do want to invest. I want to I give to the poor. I want to give to the church. I want to provide for the needs of family. Doesn't that, doesn't that stir that up in you without anybody having to guilt trip or arm twist or anything like that? Look at Jesus. Look at what he's given to us and rejoice. For those of you who are here today who are not Christians, um, let me just say to you in love, whatever you're investing your life in, whatever you're treasuring, and, and, and I would use that language of worshiping, at some point it's gonna wear out on you. There's no substitute God that lasts forever. Amen? And so I just invite you today, entrust yourself to Jesus, entrust yourself to the one who the Bible says will never leave us. He'll never forsake us and we can have confidence in him. Amen? Let's go into a time of response now. Let's respond in a few ways. The first of which, hey, get this. We're gonna collect an offering. So if the financial stewards would begin to collect the offering, listen, if you're a guest or a visitor, I, I really sincerely want you to know, no one, no one is expecting you or you shouldn't feel obligated to give. There's a wide open invitation to give as joyful worship to God. What we've already been talking about, this, this verse in 2 Corinthians is really important to us. God loves a cheerful giver, so we invite you to give cheerfully. While they're collecting the, the tithes and offerings, we'll invite our younger students class to join us for this time of response. We'll also go through some discussion questions, things to look at this week in our community groups in our homes. The first one is this. What does it mean that we are image bearers who are continuously outpouring in acts of worship? And how can we help one another discern whether we're worshiping God or worshiping idols? You need people in your lives, friends, so that we can uh, see because we have blind spots. Number two, of the wrong responses toward money, grumbling, greed, God, which do you struggle with and what fear might be underneath that sinful response? Let's dig in a little bit. Number three, how does the gospel give us true contentment. 
And how does the gospel free us from our fears? And how does the gospel free us to be generous? Let's talk about Jesus and what he has done for us. And number four, what practical steps is God asking you to take toward contentment and generosity? How can those in your community help you joyfully obey God's prompting? And then a few things to pray about because we desire to be a praying church. Number one, pray for hearts of contentment, gratitude, and generosity. You know, beyond just community group, that might be a good one individually for us to just put on our list every day this week. God, would you help me to have a heart of contentment, no fear, and a heart of generosity? Pray that our fears regarding money would be satisfied in Christ. And then number two, pray for those who are not yet Christians, that they would come to know the riches of God's grace given through Jesus. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table in just a moment. The the volunteers are going to pass out uh, the elements for communion. We're going to uh, celebrate in this, this ancient meal, this ritual that we've been celebrating together for thousands of years as Christians. And so I invite you, if you're a Christian, even if you're a guest or visitor, you're welcome to join with us at the table. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through 1 Corinthians 11. This is a passage we we read regularly to explain and to set up what it is that we're doing now. But I want you to look through this through the lens of God's generosity toward us, the riches of his grace toward us. The Apostle Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Friends, this this bread represents the very body of Jesus. This This is the picture, the representation of he who, though he was rich, he became poor for our sake. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, this This juice, this is the the blood of Jesus that was spilled out to the last drop that we might have forgiveness. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So friends, today this is an opportunity to examine your own hearts, not just money, Any other idols that the Lord brings to mind? God, I need to repent of these idols. I need to repent of worshiping them, of investing in them, and I want to worship you alone. Maybe you want to take a minute and sit, ponder, reflect. And then in a minute, I'm going to invite you to stand with us and to sing. The the band has prepared songs that sing of of the fact that God will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. They've got some songs that speak about tearing down the false idols that try to raise up in our hearts. And so um, as you're ready to celebrate the Lord's table, and then I invite you to stand with us and sing. Let me do this. Let me pray. And we'll begin our time of response. God, we thank you that you are rich and generous and lavish in your grace toward us. God, we, we... can and we will spend eternity thanking you and praising you for your generosity and your grace. And so God, I pray that today would be just a small taste of that celebration that awaits us. God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to our fears right now, the fears that we have regarding money? Would you help us to see how all of those fears are satisfied in Christ Jesus, are satisfied in the hope of the gospel, Give us your grace where we fall short and give us your empowering grace to transform us and make us more like you as we worship you. And we pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen.